I was in my study when Gloria called and told me that an airplane had crashed into the Twin Towers. We gathered in Tim's office and watched in disbelief when another airplane crashed into the other building. Ordinary people became heroes that day. We saw people rush into a building risking their own life for people whose names they did not know. America was touched at its core ten years ago today. Emotionally, we were united, at least for a brief time. Militarily, we were determined that we would defend ourselves, that this would not happen again. And spiritually, there was a turn to God for a while. It has been said that church attendance increased by 40% in the ensuing weeks. Ten years have gone by. And there are still threats against America today. There are still those who would do us harm today. But it is my sincere belief that the greatest threat we face is internal, not external. Recently, there was an article in Wall Street Journal written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was essentially asking the question, what has happened in the past years in America and in the Western world? He writes in his article, in virtually every Western society in the 1960s, there was a moral revolution, an abandonment of its entire traditional ethic of self-restraint. You do not have to be a Victorian sentimentalist to realize that something has gone badly wrong since. What has happened to us largely is that we have abandoned those values that have made us who we are. The result is that we have been affected morally and also financially. In the United Kingdom, 40% of all births today come outside the institution of marriage. And it is no different within the United States. Rabbi Sachs wrote, They are the victims of the tsunami of wishful thinking that washed across the West saying that you can have sex without the responsibility of marriage, children without the responsibility of parenthood, social order without the responsibility of citizenship, liberty without the responsibility of morality, and self-esteem without the responsibility of work and earned achievement. Our moral condition has also affected us financially. Why do we have a crisis financially around the world today? It is my contention we have the financial issue because we have the moral issue. And Sachs continues, what has happened morally in the West is what has happened financially as well. Good and otherwise sensible people were persuaded that you could spend more than you earn, incur debt at unprecedented levels, 
and consume the world's resources without thinking who would pay the bill and when. So what is our future? We look back 10 years ago. We look back to the 1960s. We look back in America. We look today as we remember. But what about the future? What does the future hold for us? Harvard historian Niall Ferguson wrote Civilization. He quotes a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences that was tasked with finding out what gave the West its dominance. What is it that has called the West to be a dominating culture? And he responded, at first, we thought it was your guns. Then we thought it was your political system, democracy. Then we said it was your economic system, capitalism. But for the last 20 years, we have known that it was your religion. For the last 20 years, we have known your dominance was a result of your religion. At a time when America is abandoning its religion, and China is largely embracing religion. Did you know today there are more Christian Chinese than there are members of the Chinese Communist Party? It is my prayer, it has been my prayer, I hope and trust it is your prayer, that today on this occasion... A revival begins in our nation as Americans pause to remember. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse number 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I'll make it a proverb 
and a byword among all peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, He has brought all this adversity on them. Our text today centers around the dedication of Solomon's temple. Solomon dedicated the temple that had been completed, and as he did so, he prayed, and the Bible says that the fire of heaven fell. If you look in verse number 1, it says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the place. So, Solomon prayed then in the dedication of the temple, and the Lord revealed himself. That's what I want you to see, that Solomon prayed and God revealed himself to the people. God revealed himself as being glorious. If you look in verse number 3, all the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house. God revealed himself as the people prayed, and the Bible says that he was glorious. Matthew Henry wrote, When they saw the fire of God come down from heaven, thus they did not run away affrighted, but kept their ground in the courts of the Lord and took occasion from it with reverence to adore the glory of God. The Bible says that they, they saw the Lord. He revealed himself to them. He was glorious and he was gracious. Verse number 3 continues. Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Folks, that's what they saw when they saw God. Truly he is good. God revealed himself to them as they prayed in response. God revealed himself to them and he was good. Matthew Henry wrote, This is a song never out of season and for which our hearts and tongues should be never out of tune. When they saw the Lord, they said, He is good. His loving kindness is forever. That's the God that they saw, and so they worshiped. The Bible says that they bowed down before Him. They were reverent before Him. Folks, that is always the response when one stands in the presence of God. There is no arrogance. There is no arrogance in the presence of God. When God reveals Himself, when God shows Himself, when there is a move of God, there is always reverence from those who see God. When John was on the Isle of Patmos in exile there, he saw the Lord. And in Revelation 1.17, he says, And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as a dead man. John said, When I saw the Lord... I fell down like a dead man before him. That is the response before God. There's always reverence. And then they sacrificed in verse 4. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. The Bible says when they saw the Lord that the king, the priest, and the people, they all provided, they all offered sacrifices of worship to God. So the story begins with the dedication of Solomon's temple, a prayer. 
And Solomon prayed to God. And the Bible says that God revealed himself as the fire fell from heaven. And then Israel and God made a covenant with each other in verse number 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So there is a covenant now that is made between God and Israel. And God said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer. I have listened. I have heard your prayer. I have heard the promises. I've heard the commitment that you have made. I have heard your prayer. And then God said, this place will be a place of sacrifice. This is going to be a place where sacrifice is offered and sacrifice is accepted. I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place. And then he gave the conditions in verse 19 and 20. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I've given you And this house which I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. I'll make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. You see, a covenant is a binding agreement between two. And Israel cried out to the Lord and they made promises to God. And God said, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place. Now, if you break the covenant, this is the result of the covenant being broken. Now, here's my question for you. Has America made covenants with God? Have we as a people made covenants with God? I believe the answer is yes. Let me give you a couple of examples where I believe we have made covenants with God. First of all, the Mayflower Compact of 1620. The compact reads, In the name of of God Almighty, we whose names are underwritten have undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith a voyage to plan the first colony in northern Virginia. Do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. Now, what was that covenant? What did they promise? What did they say? They said, first of all, that we will, we, we commit ourselves to glorifying God. That's what they said. We commit ourselves to glorifying God and advancing the Christian faith. That was the covenant. We make a covenant with God, and we will do two things. We will glorify God, and we will advance the Christian faith. I believe that was a covenant. The Declaration of Independence, I believe to be a covenant with God. The Declaration declares, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All right? They stated there their beliefs about God in what I believe to be this covenant with God. They stated what they believe. They believe, first of all, that God is the Creator, that all men are created equal, that God created man. 
And the rights we have are, God, are rights that God has given to us. Now, folks, this is very important. Now, I'm sure that you know this. The rights we enjoy are rights that have been given to us by God. That's important. Because sometimes we begin to think that the rights we have are rights that have been given to us by government. If government can give you rights, then government can take your rights. The rights we have are rights that have been given to us by God. So they expressed their belief in a creator. They believed in moral absolutes. They said these truths are self-evident. These unalienable rights are self-evident. These are moral absolutes. God has created man. God has given man these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they are self-evident. Now the question is, have we kept our part of the covenant? We made some promises to God. Have we kept our promises? Have we kept the covenant? And unfortunately, I think the answer is no, we have not. Legally, we have used our laws to break the covenant. We have passed laws that keep the Bible out of many public schools today, which is ironic to me. The first English-published Bible in this country was funded by Congress. And Congress recommended that Bible to the schools. And yet today, years later, we pass laws to take the Bible out of schools. We have laws that make nativity scenes illegal in many respects. We have laws that refuse the posting of the Ten Commandments. So, as I see it, we made a covenant with God, and then we use our legal system to break the covenant. I think we've broken it legally. I think we've broken it socially. Christian values today are seen to be out of the mainstream. I confess to you, I really don't understand that. Maybe I'm missing something, but I honestly don't understand how these basic Christian values are now considered to be out of the mainstream. It's out of the mainstream that if you owe someone money that you pay them. Is that out of the mainstream? Is it out of the mainstream that marriage is between a man and a woman? Is that out of mainstream? And yet that's what we are told today. Christian values are out of the mainstream. In many places they do not celebrate Christian holidays. Not Christmas, it's winter break. Not Easter, it's spring break. We have revised our history to exclude our Christian heritage. David Barton wrote, Few today know that of the 56 founding fathers who signed the Declaration in Independence Hall in 1776, over half had received degrees from schools that today would be considered seminaries or Bible schools. Over half those who signed the Declaration of Independence were, in effect, preachers. That's our heritage. 
And yet as time has gone by, we don't even look for godliness in those we choose to be our leaders. In 1996 presidential election, 68% of the electorate said that character in the president was not an issue. So when I look at this passage of Scripture, I see the dedication of the temple as they prayed and God revealed Himself. A covenant was made with God and God told them what to do if they broke the covenant. Verse 13. If I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, if I send pestilence among my people and my people are called by my name, here it is, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So God calls us to return and gives us the path of return. Humble themselves. Vine says that word means to make low. It is an act of grace. An humble person is a teachable person. An humble person is someone who is willing to listen, to consider, and to respond to the Word of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 25, 9, He leads the humble in justice and He teaches the humble His way. Folks, there will never be revival until, first of all, we seriously and sincerely humble ourselves before God. There will not be revival. Evan Roberts was a ministerial student in 1904. He began to believe that God was going to send a revival to Wales. So he began to pray for revival. He attended a revival meeting and his heart was touched that night as he sat in the service. And, and he responded during the invitation time as he went forward with many others, fell on his knees there at the altar, and he began to pray repeatedly, Oh, God, bend me. Bend me. God did. And he was the one who led the great Welsh revival that changed a nation. If my people who call by my name shall humble themselves and pray. I'm not sure how the mayor of New York City reached the conclusion that on this day of remembrance that there would be no prayers when the Bible says that we need to pray. Folks, if we're going to see revival, there's going to have to be the prayer of God's people. We're going to have to pray. We're going to have to seek the Lord. And we all know those kinds of prayers that bring about revival. Not, not a bowing of our head and shooting up something to God, but I'm talking about a prayer that brings revival. If we are going to see a touch of God, if God is going to reveal Himself to us again, then we're going to have to pray and we need a sense of brokenness, of desperation. Psalm 51:17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Let me ask you a question. How long has it been or have you ever been really broken before God? The Bible talks about praying at a time when we are so troubled, when our hearts are so burdened, we don't even know what to say. But the Scripture says during those times the Holy Spirit lifts our prayer for us. Brokenness. 
There's so much pride in so many of us. So much self in so many of us. And there has to be brokenness. We need prayers of brokenness and urgency. God, do something. Do something now. Dwight L. Moody had gone to England for some weeks of vacation. When he arrived there, there was a pastor who saw him, recognized him, and asked him if he would preach for him. Moody agreed to do so, though that's not what he was planning to do. The next Sunday, he preached in the man's church. And that afternoon, when he went to his room to rest, he wrote in his diary, This is the deadest crowd I've ever spoken to. I dread going back this evening. But he went back that evening to preach, and when he did, did, there were these seeds of revival that began to sprout. The next day, Moody made his way to Ireland, continuing his vacation. When he got there, there was a telegram from the pastor that said, Come back immediately, revival broke out. Moody went back to the church where he preached for the next ten nights, And there were over 400 people who professed faith in Jesus Christ as revival came to that church. We need a sense of urgency. God, things are slipping away from us. And we need you to do something now. There's going to have to be holiness. The revival in the Hebrides Islands came when seven young men began to pray, asking God to send revival. And they based their prayer on Psalm 24, 35, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in His holy place, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And they committed themselves to holiness. And God sent revival. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, seek my face. Seeking the face of God is to seek the presence of God. Usually we seek the hand of God. God, I need you to do this or I need you to do that. Lord, I want this and I want that. So we seek His hand. But when we seek His face, we seek His presence. Lord, I just want you. I want you. Are you seeking the presence of God? Are you seeking the face of God? That's what he says about revival. If revival is going to come, it's when we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, repentance. Gordon MacDonald wrote, Repentance is not basically a religious word. It comes from a culture where people were essentially nomadic and lived in a world with no maps or street signs. It's easy to get lost walking through the desert. You finally say to yourself, I'm going in the wrong direction. And that's the first act of repentance. The second act of repentance is to go in an alternate direction. That's what repentance is. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The call from God. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And then the conclusion, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, will heal their land. Ladies and gentlemen, if we do that, we are promised God's ear. I will hear from heaven. That means more than to listen to. It means to pay attention to. It means God pays attention to your prayer. Does God pay attention when you pray? Well, it probably depends on whether or not you've humbled yourself. 
sought his face, and turned from wickedness. The promise from the Lord then is that I will forgive your sin. I will forgive. That's God's promise. And then he's promised God's healing, that he will heal the land. Now, he has given us the remedy and he has promised restoration if we follow his plan. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Here's the thing. We do the invitation. I have been praying for revival to begin today in America because I know that people will be reminded across this land of 9-11. I have been praying that revival might begin in our church today, in your life today. Not just coming to church and say, well, we had another service. I was glad the first responders, the military was there. That was a neat service. That's all it is. Then it's not going to make any more difference than it did on 9-11. We go on our way and nothing is different. It is my prayer that today God will speak to your heart and you will be obedient to God. And some of you have never given your life to Jesus Christ. You may be religious, you may be moral, but you have never been born again. I pray today that you'll be born again. Some of you have sat on the sidelines. You've never gotten involved in a church. And today, if the Lord leads you here, we'd love to have you. But this is also what I'm asking today, that you allow God to speak to your hearts and that many of you come to the altar and in these aisles and just get things right with God. Simply, if it's God, here I am. And from this day forward, Every step I take, I want to be a step in righteousness. Make that covenant, that commitment to God. Our gracious Father, we come as we extend this invitation in your name and ask, Lord, that you speak to hearts and that we respond obediently. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that you remain seated. I'm going to ask that the choir sing softly and that the staff stand right here at the front. If you want to join the church, you come to a staff member and tell them. If you want to trust Jesus, come to one of them. If you want to just get up and come and pray, committing your life to Him, I hope you'll do that right now.